Luke 15, uh, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with his compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who had squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. Good to be with you all this morning to look into God's Word. A, pro, a parable that has been read, preached on, taught on over centuries. But we're going to take another look at it today. So before we do that, Let's bow our heads and uh, ask God for his grace as we look into his word. Father, we don't take this moment together lightly. It's by your grace that you open your word to us. 
It's by grace that you open our ears to your word. It's by grace that you regenerate us in our hearts. It's by grace that you bring us to your throne of grace. And it's by grace that we receive it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, including their mind, Father, may they be acceptable to you. You are our rock. You are our redeemer. In Christ's name and for his glory we ask this. Amen. As uh, the Old Testament readings were read, I trust that as God's people you heard the heart of the Father. If there's an Old Testament book that opens up how God feels about his people, it's Hosea. And Hosea 11 and onwards up to Hosea 14 is written for us to understand his heart. Uh, we have had earthly fathers. The first time I preached this sermon, I was telling Sheila early on, may have been a Father's Day sermon, 2007 or 2006. So I thought we would, I know, we are one month early for Father's Day, which is in September. But it's always good to hear of God as our Father. We have all had earthly fathers. Uh, some have been taken away from us early in life, as my father was. Um, other fathers have been absent from our lives. It's the land of the absent father, as uh, Bruce Robinson, a good friend of mine, used to say. Um, and other times, our fathers have been sources of pain for us in our life. So whatever it is, God as a father, he, he clearly says, he's not like man. Hosea 11, for I am God, not man, the Holy One among you. And he, even in, in, verse, in 14, verse 3, he says, uh, I, am, I show compassion to the fatherless and the widows. So God is our Father. So my sermon today is titled, it's from uh, Luke 15, and it's titled, The Welcoming Father, and his three sons. So before we do that, let me just ask a bit of a quiz. What do Tom Hanks in Castaway, the year 1719, and TV shows like Gilligan's Island, my genre, <laughs> or Lost, have in common? I've probably given you the clue. Shout it out! My earlier church was a small church and we always interacted. What is a common thread? Stranded. What other word can you use? Lost. The word lost comes eight times in that uh, section of uh, Luke 15. Eight times lost, lost, lost. Oh, in the, in the whole chapter of uh, Luke 15. So they were all lost. But what about 17, 19? Is there any literature people here? No, it's more to do with England. Not Milton. Does Daniel Defoe? 
It was the first English novel that was published. And what was the title? Robinson Crusoe. Yes. The story of a castaway. A story of a man who was lost on an island of America for a number of years. It's a true story. His name was Robinson Crusoe. And probably it was the autobiography of Daniel Defoe. You know, there is something immediately captivating, isn't it? that evokes our empathy when we hear of a lost person. All these stories are about survivors of a great wreck who are cut off from the world, separated from loved ones, left for dead, forced to fend for themselves without help, without home, lost. But you know, friends, there's another more profound way in which a person can be lost. Listen to a very revealing statement from a lost teenager that I once read about. This is what he says. I belong to the blank generation. I have no beliefs. I belong to no community, tradition, or anything like that. I am lost in this vast, vast world. I belong nowhere. I have absolutely no identity. You know, that's a much more profound sense of being lost. It's being human, but not part of humanity. And everyone who's lost wants to be found whether it is in Castaways, Gilligan's Island, or Lost, the series called Lost, everybody lost has a common desire to be found. Everybody wants to be found and embraced and told, you belong here. That's why always when I look at church, I will say, it is first belonging before becoming. Where else will you hear the gospel but in church? But we must be radically accepting, although not necessarily radically affirming. And that's when, in community, they become what God wants them to become. The Bible is a story about being lost in this deeper sense. And that is what chapter 15 in the Gospel of Luke is all about. In response to the attitude of the religious leaders of the day, Jesus tells three parables or stories about the loss. We must not lose that context. It is then in chapter 15, the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering all around Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he tells them this parable. It was not told to his disciples. Actually, the story was addressed to the religious persons. The first parable is about a shepherd, being, a shepherd losing his sheep. The second is about a woman losing coins. And the third is about a father losing his sons. All three parables, my friends, are about being lost and the joy of being found. But the third story, what we're going to look into today, is different from the first two. You know, a lost sheep and a lost coin are like a misplaced wallet or purse or keys. 
They did not know that they were lost, did they? Did the sheep know that it was lost? Or your coin in your wallet, did you know that it was lost? No. The third story tells us something far more deliberate and terrible. Jesus says that to some degree, through that parable, we are all lost in the most profound way of all. We are lost from God. The sons knew that they were lost. But get this. It is not that God lost us. Okay? As a woman loses a coin or as a shepherd loses a sheep. It is not that God lost us. No, we are lost because we left God. Like the sheep, we have wandered away. Like the coin, we have slipped out of the hand. Like the younger son, we have run away from home. Like the older brother, we refuse to sit and eat with our Heavenly Father. Let me ask you, do you need peace and reconciliation in your life? Do you want to have a renewed life with God? The first step is knowing that you are lost. Seeing that you have gone astray. Not merely knowing your wounds, but also knowing your waywardness. But that can be difficult. We have people, <laughs> as men, I find it harder, you know, than women. You know, whenever we, I and Sheila drive around, we have Google quarrels. You know, Google map has got its route, and I think I know a better route. <laughs> but sometimes I get lost, more often than ever. But I'm never humble enough to say, look, I need help. I'm, I'm, I got lost. Can you give me a direction? <laughs> Sheila, can you look at that Google map again? <laughs> but how do you know you're lost? You know, there are several indicators. For some, it is that plaguing sense of guilt for a wrong done. For others, it is that self-condemning tape message we play over and over again in our heads. Still others, enslaved to some bad, disgusting habit, you hate it but yourself, but you can't seem to stop. For others, it is the despairing self-resignation that you can't change. That's the way I am. So who is this father? that Jesus is illustrating in the story, the hope that we all have, the Father that he's talking about. Do we have the same view of the Father that Jesus is talking about? It is obvious that the Father in this story is God himself. You know, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And fallen humanity does not have a correct view of who God the Father is. I dare say that. I never had a correct view, and sometimes I'm correcting myself more often as I get older. Jesus himself said this. In no uncertain terms, he was very, very exclusive. 
He said this in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 22, and you look it up, and Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27, he said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How exclusive that can be. That is Jesus. He always shocked his hearers. And I hope he will even shock you today. You know, we all have this tendency to view God as an employer. That's the problem. We think God is an employer, like your boss at work. Let me explain what I mean. We are told what the context to these three stories were, isn't it? In the opening verses of the chapter, there were stories, uh, Jesus' answer to the mutterings or grumblings of some men about his welcoming and eating with sinners. Muttering men here in the story are religious people, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. The sinners they are referring to are irreligious people, tax collectors and sinners in their time. In our time, you can... Classify whoever that may be. You know very well. People who don't dare darken the doorstep of a church. Damn, church. Humbugs. Hypocrites. The religious people view themselves as being on the inside of God's attitude and agenda. They think they know who God is and what he is doing. The outsiders, the irreligious, are admittedly clueless. They don't know what God is about and what God is doing. So the religious people thought that God was a great employer. Do good work, keep your job, and you will keep your job. The irreligious people thought God was a harsh employer, and so they left. I can't do what I want to do. God doesn't allow me to do what I want to do. So they left. But both the religious and the irreligious thought the same thing about God. They all viewed him as an employer. They both thought that, you know, you could calculate God's attitude towards you by adding up your good works. If you're done well, God is happy with you, at least for the moment. If you have been lazy or fail to follow the rules, God is pointing you to the door and telling you to leave until you shape up. Jesus knows this. He knows very well the kinds of thoughts people have about God. So he tells the story of a father and two sons, and what he tells us is actually very shocking to the first hearers of the story. It may not so be for us in the 21st century, it took me a while, and with the help of many people over the years, to understand what was actually going, going on here. And it will also shock us if we first heard, heard this story with Middle Eastern years. You've got to transport yourself to the Middle East. You are growing up there in the Middle East. You're used to that culture there. So to Middle Eastern years, what Jesus was saying is really shocking. 
Well, the story of the youngest son, let's look at it first. The youngest son appears to us to make a very simple and reasonable request. Father, give me my share of the estate. He wants his inheritance ahead of time. And the father appears to respond in a reasonable way. He divides up the inheritance between his sons. Actually, the text in the Greek also intimates what I'm going to say to you. But to the ears of someone from the Middle East, the son's request for his share of the state comes with shock. Kenneth Bailey, whose writings has been very helpful, he was a biblical scholar who lived in the Middle East for 40 years or more. He says that he had, heard, he had had hundreds of conversations with people in the Middle East about this story. He asks them, have you ever heard a son ask for his inheritance? And do you know what is the typical response from the Middle Easterners? Never! Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. Really then ask, if anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Would give him a good thrashing. Not take out his checkbook and give him his share of the portion and give him his sandals, as they often did. Why? Because asking for an inheritance means the son wants his father to die. That is the implication. Did you know that? I didn't, certainly. What appears to us as a simple request came reasonable, is in reality not a request, but a curse. It is shocking, and it actually reveals a young man's heart. Any Middle Easterner knows only too well what his son has done. He has openly, publicly, before the entire community, cursed his father, humiliated him, insulted him, and embarrassed him, and yes, in his murderous heart, has murdered his father. And that's why Jesus told it. He wanted us to be shocked. Jesus knew that most of us don't understand the severity of sin. For many of us, sin is a mistake. Sin is just blowing it, you know, doing something bad. But for Jesus, sin looks more like the son's request. Sin is wishing God were dead. Keep out of my life. Disappear, God. Sin is a human desire that God would die. Sin is a way we curse God by our actions. Like the son, sin is leaving God. Yes, we are lost. But we are lost only because we have left. But look at how the father responds. He's been insulted, isn't he? He's been humiliated before the entire village. And he lets his son leave. He gives him his entire share of the inheritance. That's the father's livelihood. The father does not respond in kind when they're insulted. He does not retaliate, does he? Despite the murderous thoughts of his son, despite the public humiliation, he lets him go. He lets him go. I guess the father knows this, that if he is to have his son, he must have him for the right reason. 
the son must love the father. Not look for things to get from the father. And again, that reminds us of the mystery of sin. Hmm. How can the son leave such a home? This is not a dysfunctional home. This is a home where the son is cared for every day. Where every day he eats with his father and his father makes everything available to him. And he still says to the father, yes, and I wish dad would die so I could take my money and run. Mystery of sin. Jesus goes on and to tell how the son squanders his money, falls on desperate times, finds himself starving to death in a foreign land, and then comes to his senses when he's down in the pigsty. Can you imagine a Jewish man in a pigsty? <laughs> The depth of depths. The wayward son then repents. Verse 17. Let me read verse 17. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. Not to his senses. Empty tummy. Can't sleep. But again, my friends, appearances are deceiving. Many times we, there's a lot of ink spilt on this. We think this is repentance. It's the model of repentance that's deceiving. I'll tell you why. In verses 18 and 19, we read that the son says, what does the son say? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me, make me as one of your hired servants. Sounds good to you, doesn't it? Sounds good to me. <laughs> In my earlier part of my life, that sounds good to me. Sounds like he came to his senses. Most of us think so. But surprisingly enough, the son is mimicking the words of a very wicked and manipulative man in the Bible. Guess who I'm referring to? In Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, we are told that God sent a plague of locusts upon Egypt, one of the ten plagues. And after that plague of locusts, Pharaoh cries out to Moses. And this is what it says. I have sinned against the Lord and against you. Exodus 10, 16. But if you look at the context there, Pharaoh is actually playing for time until he can get back at Moses. Same words, same phrase. So the wording of the prodigal son's confession is the first clue for us that things really haven't changed. The son hasn't really come to his senses. He plans to go back to the farm, yes indeed, but not to return to his father. He's got a business plan in his, in his head. It's born out in verse 19. Listen again to what he says in verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands or hired servants. You see what the boy wants? 
He wants to pay back the money he has squandered. He thinks he's at least good enough to be a hired hand in his father's household. Yes, he's not worthy to be a son, but he thinks, I blew my estate, but I'll pay you back that. I'll pay you back. The business plan he's got in his mind, not repentance. Let me ask you, does that son really think of his dad as a father or as an employer? Isn't it as an employer? He doesn't expect his father to accept him as a son, not full and free acceptance. He returns not to be reconciled to his father, but to seek a position in his father's household. He returns not as a son, but rather as an employee. In one sense, he was right. He, he was no longer worthy to be called a son. All that he had formerly possessed as to rights and privileges as a son, he had squandered when he cursed his father and showed utter disregard for his family. He had taken off and wasted all he had been given, but he still thinks he can repay. He still thinks he can repay. The son seems to have calculated his losses, made a good business plan to recoup what he had lost. Yet, he did not calculate one thing. One thing. What was that? He never counted on his father's response. He never suspected the kind of response he'd received from the father he had insulted and cursed. How does this father respond? Verses 20 to 24. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Saw him at the distance. Was filled with compassion for him. Maybe he saw his gait, the way he walked. Ah, that's my son. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, kissed him. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, the best wagyu beef you can find. And kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Did you expect that? I didn't expect that. You expect a shepherd to go after his lost sheep, loss of revenue. You would expect a woman to search for a lost coin, the loss of her savings. But you don't expect this, do you? When you let, me, let, me, let me put it in common parlance for us. When you lose, or I lose my wallet, or when you lose your wallet, I expect you to search for it. If you lose your car, I expect you to look long and hard for it. Call the police and blah, blah, blah. But when your son, my son, when your son steals your wallet, writes off your car in a drunken spree, what do you expect? Would that be a response? Is the father's response here? You know, I'll probably be pacing the room, waiting for him to come home. I'll probably be sitting down, my arms crossed, tapping my feet, wait till this mother comes home. That's what I would do. We don't expect you to, to, to run out to meet him, kiss him, welcome him, call for a party, 
and say, let's celebrate. Would you? Nah. Jesus tells this story to hook us. To hook us. He knows what we expect. He knows what his, his first hearers expected. Whether it was the 21st century or the 1st century in Australia or Africa, we all expect God to look at our performance, grade us, and respond in kind. It's justice we expect, not mercy. It is wages we expect, not grace. And Jesus says, my dear friends, wrong, wrong, wrong. You don't know my father. You don't know my father. That's what he's telling us. So he, give us, he gives us this unexpected. Instead of the community catching up, condemning the boy, before he gets home, the father runs to greet him while he's still a long way off. Then, you know, Vestro rings on his finger. Pattern car. Celebration. So instead of condemning his son, the father runs to greet him. He seals his forgiveness with a lavish celebration. That's how God loves the lost. That's how God loves the lost. That's how he loves both the religious and the irreligious. That says Jesus how God loves you and how God loves me. The ones who have left God. But that's not where the story ends, does it? Eh? What about the eldest son? In one sense, we've, all we have heard so far is really preparation for the story of the elder brother. You know, times of feasting have begun, the calf is being killed, and uh, everyone, the entire community is expected, uh, invited, and all are there, and there's a grand celebration, grand that is for everyone except the older son, the elder son. The elder son is working in the fields. He's a good boy, stays at home, works hard for his dad, makes the family prosper. He honors his father, he honors his family, he honors his community. Number one son, in many respects, number one son. He hasn't messed up, he hasn't done drugs, he hasn't been drunk, he hasn't squandered his wealth, he saves faithfully. He's a good son. We all love to talk about that kind of a son, don't we? He's a good son. He brings honor to the family name. So he comes in from the fields, this number one son. He hears the music and dancing and asks one of his servants, a oh, young boy there outside the home, what's going on? And he's told, your brother, your brother has returned. He was lost and now he's found. And what is his response? He becomes angry, embittered. He refuses to go into the celebration. Wouldn't you? I would. Don't you hate it? Don't you hate it when the kid who causes all the trouble gets most attention? Ah, the school teacher, you know that. <laughs> While you've been so good, he gets the most attention. So yes, we expect the elder son to get angry. But there's more that's going on here. And Bailey, Kenneth Bailey is helpful here. You see, in the Jewish culture, there was a custom of the elder son who gets two-thirds of the property. Look at Deuteronomy, you know that. It's the custom of the elder son to be present at such a public celebration. 
He holds a semi-official role, the eldest son. When the father is having a feast, it isn't just for the nuclear family or even the slightly extended family. The whole village is there. The eldest son belonged at the right side beside his father. So in this situation, his defiant refusal is a major insult to the father. Just like what the younger son did. Insulting his father. He's insulted. The elder son is insulting the father. But what does the father do? Huh? What does the father do? Does he ignore the son? Or send a servant to command him to come in? Look at the text. No. He goes out. Just like he went out for the younger son. He goes out. The second time he has gone out for a son. And he speaks to his son. But listen to how the eldest son responds to his father. The father who has already been insulted and embarrassed by his younger son. If the prodigal son was doubtful of his father's love, here the eldest son is downright antagonistic to his father. He murmurs and complains and wallows in self-pity. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. 29 to 30, that is. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not his brother, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. What do you think of that? Does he see himself as a son? Or as a servant, a slave? Does he see his dad as father or as an employer? Does he know that in his work, he's an heir? Not just a, the best employee, you know, as bullies or wherever you get the best employee of the month. Yes, the younger son surrendered his soul to his passions, but the elder son surrendered his soul to his pride and self-sufficiency. The elder son accuses his father of being a fool. Worse, he accuses his father of neglecting to pay what he owes. He thinks the father has cheated him. You can easily imagine the stinging tone in his voice as he says, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed you, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You stupid old man. You cheat. You taskmaster. That is what the elder son is saying. But note, this is again a public accusation. When the father left the feast, do you think the, the, the guests kept on eating? No, they followed the father out. And they witnessed this confrontation taking place between the father and the son. It's a public thing. They heard the elder son sully his father's name and reputation. He embarrassed his father just as surely as a younger son did. It's a, it's a public thing, not a private thing. So the elder son rejection shows us another aspect, my friends, of our own hearts. 
They don't want anyone to offer hugs and kisses to those who have done wrong. No ropes or sandals or feet or golden ring. We don't want to celebrate when someone has done wrong. When others have done wrong, what do we want? What do we want? Justice, not mercy. We want payback. Somebody has got to pay. Restitution must be made. But look at the father's response. We expect the father to give him a tongue lashing. But what does the father say? My son, you, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate, be glad because your brother was, the brother of yours was dead and his life again. He was lost and he's found. Even though the elder son deserves a severe rebuke for publicly defying the father, the father responds with the same kind of mercy he extended to the younger son. The father reaffirms his love for the defiant older son, gently admonishes him, reminds him of the inheritance that will always be his. He seeks to draw him into celebration of repentance and reconciliation. My friends, both of the sons were lost in their sin and their rejection of the father. One gave himself to his passions, the other to his pride and self-sufficiency. Yet, father's love was unquenchable. He continued to extend grace and mercy as he sought to draw his sons back to himself. See, that is Jesus' point. You don't know my father. I know my father. You don't know my father. We don't know how great the father's love for us. We sang about that, didn't we? How much he welcomes us home. How ready and willing and eager he is to forgive with no strings attached. Hosea chapter 11. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. Jesus reminds the Pharisees in another context. I desire has said, that's the Hebrew word translated mercy, not Eleos, it's has said, covenant faithfulness. That's what I expect, not sacrifices of goats and cows and blood. Yes, it was necessary, but I don't expect that all the time. In this story, there's one final thing we do not expect, do we? The third son. Now, you may be looking to see whether you've got the right Bible here. That's a Bible that Alex is reading, but the third son. What third son? Doesn't Jesus mention only two? Well, my friends, you have not fully understood the story if you miss the third son. Who's the third son? He's the one telling the story. Eh? He's the one who's telling the story. Jesus is the third son. He's the insider who truly knows the father's heart. I said that earlier, no one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son. He's telling us that this is what God is like, a welcoming father to rebellious, bitter, foolish sons, religious or irreligious. Why is the father so willing and eager to welcome lost sons? Why? Because Jesus 
His only begotten Son lived a perfect life, fully paid for the penalty of all the wrongs that we have committed. He received the harsh, he received the harsh rebuke and just wrought the severe punishment that every wayward son deserved. Jesus, my friends, has paid it all, paid for all our sins, and thereby opened the way for us to return to our Father's loving arms. Because of the perfect third son, our Heavenly Father is waiting for his other sons. And of course, daughters, it's a gender-neutral word. Okay? Don't think women are off the hook here. <laughs> Who yours could be the daughters as well? He is waiting for the other sons and daughters to return so that he may bless them, forgive them, accept them, celebrate over them with the whole host of heaven. Just like the recurrent phrase in the first part of, uh, of chapter 15, there's more joy in heaven. You want to create a party in heaven? Bring the lost. Bring the lost. There's more joy in heaven. There's a great party in heaven. If one sinner repents and returns. That's the role of our church. That is the role of our church. There is more grace in God then there is sin in us. There is more grace in God than there is sin in us. And I leave you with that thought as we look into the welcoming Father and His three sons. That's hope for us. As a community of believers who have tasted and seen what the Lord is like. Whether you're religious or whether irreligious, God welcomes you in. Come in, he says. Come in through Jesus Christ, the only one who knows me. So, we introduce our friends, we introduce our family to Jesus. Come, find out about Jesus. Not what you hear. Read your Bible for yourself. Find out about Jesus. Then you will begin to see what a wonderful father we have. More ready to forgive than we are to ask forgiveness. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we thank you for this moment together around your word. We confess, Father, we fall far short. It doesn't matter how long we have walked with you. Every day is a new day. There's much we have to repent for. Things we have said and done and thought. Things we have left undone, unsaid. But Father God, we thank you that in Christ Jesus, you have forgiven us. That he has stood in our place. That he has paid for us what we could never pay for ourselves. Thank you that in him we have salvation. Amen.